So I'm going to start by just praying one more time. And so, Lord, just as Rachel prayed, we have really have just come to <laughs> see you and to hear from you. Lord, your spirit gives life, Lord. And so we ask for that, Lord. We ask that you bring life to your word and that your spirit, of course, Lord, would make application into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, scripture references are on the back because I have a zillion of them, so you don't have to stress about that. And although we are studying Titus 2.5, I forgot the gum. I'll still talk to you guys while I'm doing this. We are studying Titus 2.5. Um, I actually, if you have a Bible, yes. True friends. Yes. We're actually going to be looking at 1 Samuel 25. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be actually there today. Um, I know it's funny, but don't worry. We're still doing Titus 2.5 as well. We're just going to overlay it. So anyways, here's your verse in Titus 2.5. It says, the women are exhorted (coughs) to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And that's your study. You can all go home. Just kidding, just kidding, it's a little fun. But no, really, seriously, I was excited at the opportunity to teach our text, especially today in the light of the topic of discretion. So upon consideration of that, the homework very much was pretty much on discretion, so and other things, but that's where we took I, I took my cue from. And so when I thought about that, Abigail's story came to mind as like the perfect proof text for what we were looking at today with discretion. So Even among women of the Bible, Abigail stands out out for her notable discretion. So let's begin with some basics. What does discretion mean? So a quick online definition reveals that discretion is the quality of behaving or speaking in such a way as to avoid causing conflict or offense um, and revealing and not revealing confidential information. It's also the freedom to decide what should be done in a particular situation. So point number one on your study guide says, the biblical definition means to be of a sound mind, self-controlled, temperate. So your fill in the blank is sound and temperate. Okay, so now we're going to witness discretion in context through the life of Abigail. We pick up our story, as I mentioned, in 1 Samuel 25, where it is sheep shearing time in Carmel. And I will be using the NIV translation this time. That's just how it came out this time. So just for reference, it's not exactly the same. That's why. So to summarize what's going on here is here's some quick facts. Nabal is a wealthy, but he's a mean businessman. And he is somehow married to the beautiful and intelligent Abigail. David is still on the run from King Saul, and while he's in the desert, uh, he and his men protected the vast flocks of Nabal, and they did so with integrity. But due to the sheep shearing season, it's a festive time in Carmel, and David's men come calling for some goods, some repayment for all their hard work. (coughs) And then, as human nature dictates, the drama ensues. David relays his message, to which Nabal replies, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And we know right off the bat that Nabal's being sarcastic right there. Of course he knew who David was. His fame had spread. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. And of course, you have another spin. We have some more fake news. David wasn't breaking away from his master, right? David was being persecuted by Saul, who was trying to take his life. 
Then he says in verse 11, why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? He was in the desert. David was in the desert looking now for Nabal's stuff. Of course he knew where David was. So we have a lie here too. Just a little taste of Nabal. But in the world of men, respect is everything. And as wives, we ought to take note of this as well. David's response is both classic and priceless. He says, put on your swords. That's what he tells his men. And I wish I would have brought my, my son's plastic sword. It would have been great. Too bad. But he says, put on your swords. So 400 mighty men are now racing toward the house of Nabal, ready to avenge David's honor. Meanwhile, enter Abigail. So she hears the scoop of impending disaster from a servant. Verse 18, Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas, which is a bushel of roasted grain, um, 100 cakes of raisin, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. So we capture our first glimpse of Abigail's discretion at work. She instantly and accurately assesses the situation, and she acts with vision, prudence, and sound judgment. Eventually, she comes face to face with David at a mountain ravine, and she finds herself in a precarious location and situation where there is no turning back. Notice her immediate response in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and she bowed before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet. Was she hysterical? No. Was she out of her mind? No. Once again, we watch her exhibit decisiveness and self-control in the midst of chaos. She descends from her donkey and she assumes a posture of humility that communicates reverence. Her measured response is quite the contrast to David. David, on the other hand, he's in the throes of hot-blooded rage. And he literally just tells his men, may God deal with the enemies of David, be it ever so severely. If by morning I leave alive one male who belonged to him, referring to Nabal. But Abigail She's going to use tempered words and a soft answer to throw cool water upon David's fiery rage. Let's watch their first interaction in verse 24. She says, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Now again, Abigail demonstrates respect toward David's by addressing him as my Lord. She is polite she is not brash. She is not demanding. She makes her a request for attention with etiquette. She says, please. She willingly places herself under the authority by, labeling her, by his authority by labeling herself as David's servant. And although Abigail takes ownership of Nabal's reckless words, she also readily acknowledges the truth of his character. Verse 25. <laughs> May the Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just, like, he's just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. So I realized the fact that Abigail admitting that her husband was wicked and foolishness might sound a little harsh on some ears, yes? And though I don't know her motive, and I have no idea what her tone was, my personal take is that she's not slandering Nabal here. Truthfully, he was a wicked man. 
Yeah, and the Bible records his reputation as such. So given the, you know, the circumstances of impending doom, I wonder if Abigail is more, maybe more pleading or really more acknowledging the reality of Nabal's flaws in hopes to assuage and pacify David's wrath. Either way, because I don't know, this is just my opinion here, either way, her efforts are an attempt to save her husband and her household. That we know of. Nabal is a fool, but she sought his benefit anyway. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life, Proverbs 31, 12. Now in the next verse, notice how Abigail is going to shift her focus off of herself and she's going to put it on the Lord, verse 26. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. Point number two, a woman of discretion, she is self-controlled. She is not self-focused. Self-controlled, not self-focused. She habitually points others toward God where the glory belongs. Abigail is not vying for attention. And I believe that this verse actually illustrates the second characteristic that we find in Titus 2.5, where it tells godly women to be chaste or pure. Her actions reflect a heart that's modest and humble. She is unassuming. She's not obnoxious. She's not desperate for recognition nor provocative in pronouncement. Again, she directs her audience upward toward God. And ironically, this is interesting, it's this purity of spirit, it's this meekness that she possesses that will actually cause her to stand out, regardless of her selfless attempt to shift the attention away from herself. Yes, Abigail is physically beautiful and intelligent, but point number three, she is rare. Now, she is rare because her conduct is righteous and her spirit is gentle and quiet. So rare, conduct, spirit are your fill-in-the-blanks. And as we'll soon see, she will garner favor precisely because she's not how the world tells women they ought to be, flashy, scantily clothed, with enough makeup to even rival that of a clown. Now my sound ministry is going to give us a picture. Okay, that's Krusty the Clown. We don't want to look like that, right, ladies? Say that. No, we don't. That's, That's not what we want. We don't want to be crusty. No. Ladies, now let me balance that though, okay? Because I I don't want to offend anybody there. There's nothing wrong with looking nice and taking care of yourself. Not a thing with that. And honestly, God created women. He created us so attractively. That was his design. He made us lovely. He made us so fearfully and wonderfully. Girl, you look good. Now, why don't you turn to each other? If you have some next to you and say, you look good. You look good. Yes, you do. All of you. You look good. That is the way the Lord created you. You're beautiful. That's, there's nothing to be ashamed about that. But what I'm talking about here is the fact that we don't want to become corrupted on the account of our beauty. Because that's what happened to Satan, right? He became corrupted on the account of his beauty. And he went through pride. He succumbed to his pride as a result. There's danger with indecency. And there's a difference between the natural enhancement, right, of those God-given features and attributes and and being overexposed, overprocessed, overdone. Why? The motivation? 
for the glory of self and the approval and the attention of others, especially the attention of men, right? And men who are not your husband. Girl, you look good for your husband. That is great. We encourage that, right? But we're not doing that so that we can garner attention from men, other men. That's, not, that's, that's the line we don't want to cross. But Abigail, she stands out in every aspect. Because she, why? Because she is governed by the Lord. Do you see the difference? She's governed by the Lord. And therefore, she will shine his radiance in whatever she undertakes. So girlfriend could be dressed in a sackcloth, doing dishes, have a messy, um, a messy bun, and still look good. Right? Because it's her character that's evident to all. You see, it's not what she's doing. It's who she is. Yes? It's who she is. Let's continue to watch Abigail display her discretion in verse 27. Let this gift, which your servant has brought to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Now, we're going to use this verse to encapsulate another characteristic from Titus 2.5. I told you we're going over it which admonishes godly women to be good or kind. So Abigail's purity of heart to foster the salvation of her household takes shape in tangible form by the offering of gifts that she brings for the men, right? Remember, she packed bread, wine, cakes, grain. She got all the thing, you know, the whole kitchen sink. But in Proverbs 18, 16, it says a gift opens the way for a giver, for the giver, and ushers him into the presence of the great. And so that we see her, her purity, right? We see that translate into acts of goodness, which will inevitably work out toward the benefit of all involved in that fiasco, yes? But notice with me, it's not just a random gift or some good gesture of goodness, right? Abigail used wisdom to select the appropriate types of gifts, She supplies the men with precisely what they asked for, what they needed originally, food. And you know, girls, tell me this is true. You can seldom go wrong when you offer food to a man. Amen? I mean, it's a sure thing. It's a sure bet. But seriously, though, Abigail's got intention, not luck. She's not haphazard. She's not lazy. But she had purpose. She had aim. And she had precision of thought. She used that big brain. Imagine if she showed up with flowers and a cup of chai tea (laughs) to men who are armed with the teeth. I mean, right? That doesn't match. They're not going to want to have tea time with Abigail. No, they're they're ready for business. Sometimes it requires discretion to know how to best assist others. In Proverbs 25.20, it offers some wisdom for us. It says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on soda, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart, right? Kind of a mixed match. There is a time to speak. There is a time to be quiet. There's definitely a time to sit among the ashes. Discernment recognizes the difference and discretion pivots appropriately. Yes? With Abigail, we can trace her discretion all the way back from when and why she selected and packed all her goodies all the way to and through the deliverance of those goodies. Her acts of kindness were fitting for the situation. So Abigail extends goodwill not only with her hands, but with her heart. Excuse me. Picking up in verse 28, we read, Please forgive your servant's offense. 
For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Okay, so she continues to seek goodwill and peace by asking David to forgive her for the offense committed by her husband. A woman of discretion strives towards optimal outcomes. Listen to me, as is permissible. You can do your best and still go, go, go haywire, right? But she's trying her best, okay? She's taken in the scenario and she's calculating how best she can serve God and others. Now, this does not mean that she's a people pleaser, but that she's considered in her thoughts and that she's temperate in her actions. And she's chiefly concerned with what? Honoring the Lord. And her thought processes flow from this desire. Abigail furthers goodwill by astutely reminding David of God's future promise of creating a lasting dynasty for him. Now, she accomplishes this by pointing to God's past faithfulness in David's previous victories. We'll see that in a second. But for all these reasons and more, she appeals to his conscience to proceed here in a blameless manner as to prevent further wrongdoing. (coughs) It's like she's saying, David, now come on, brother, you've got so much going for you. Why mess it up now? Act now like the king you're going to be, right? So returning to our text, verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, this is a reference to King Saul, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from a pocket in a sling. What does that remind you of? That's Goliath, right? It's in parallel to David's victory over Goliath and stone. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he's promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. So Abigail continues her plea in more detail for David to proceed here in a manner worthy of kingship. Give me one second. We will find... that David does indeed act kingly and mercifully here. He will avoid the staggering burden of needless bloodshed upon his conscience, at least this time. But allow me, ladies, to go off the beaten path for a moment. What I'm about to share with you came from my quiet time with the Lord last week, um, where my study was pretty much done, like the bones were done, it's just the editing phase. But I was in the Word before I went to, you know, pick up my study, and I believe the Lord just gave me a word for some here, and I want to share that with you. I want to share, I was reading through um, Psalm 51, and I was struck by the connection of verse 14, which I'm about to share, and the text we have today. In verse 14, David writes, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. And so my mind began to race, and I remembered how David avoided the bloodshed from what we were talking about now with Nabal, right? He avoided that burden of of needless bloodshed because he refrained from killing Nabal and had the men of his household. But I know that according to Psalm 5114, he finds himself back in the same set of circumstances of guilt. And then suddenly it clicked for me. It is my firm belief that the Holy Spirit brought 
some illumination to the psalm that I was reading, and then some application. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So I want you to call, recall with me a later time and a different woman. So David spots the beautiful but married Bathsheba, okay? And so he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And after multiple attempts to cover up his sin, David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines of battle where the fighting is fiercest and he dies because the men around him pull away intentionally so that Uriah dies. So in response, David pins Psalm 51 after being confronted by Nathan the prophet. And once again, verse 14 of 51 says, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. David understood the weight and the burden of such guilt. And in Psalm 38.4, he writes, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And similarly, the stain of guilt has touched us all, right? Who hasn't struggled with the burden of past failures, those lonesome thoughts, the incredible regret, the shameful memories, and the continual desire for a do-over? And though we've all struggled with guilt, I feel impressed by the Spirit to recognize the possibility that some here in this room may have experienced such a weight, perhaps from a previous abortion. Now let me say, with all the tenderness I can on my heart, that I realize right now that I've just stepped into some difficult ground, that we've just entered into the sacred territory of your heart. And I want you to know that I'm going to tread carefully here, but I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. If you can relate to David's difficulty, then please notice with me, where did he take his guilt? He said, save me from bloodshed, oh God. The God who what? Saves me. Just as David turned to the Lord for salvation, so we turn to to him as well. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 32, 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And I want you to catch something in that, ladies. Did you see that? That the Lord not only extends forgiveness, but he offers to cover the guilt of that sin too so that you don't have to carry that anymore. He'll cover that too, precious, if you'll let him. If you'll let him. He'll cover you in a blanket of white snow, because he's willing. He is willing. I have seen her ways, but I will heal her. I will guide her and restore comfort to her, creating praise on the lips of the mourners of Israel. Praise on the lips of the mourners of Vista of Oceanside, of North County. That's his heart. And like David, you can still sing songs of righteousness because he has made you right, righteous in Christ if you know him. If anyone here is carrying this guilt, maybe you've carried it for years, we want to wrap our arms around you so tightly and lovingly. Maybe you feel that it's impossible to really believe and receive this forgiveness or really truly experience the freedom from guilt. Do you desire a change of perspective? Are you ready for something new? Do you want to be more than a conqueror in Christ? 
Because if you do, I want to tell you, we have amazing women here who understand exactly how you feel because they themselves have had abortions. They've walked through that journey and they've come through it, sister. And they are available and they are willing to come alongside you and together you will embark on a journey of healing through counseling or maybe a specific Bible study. There's a retreat called Go in Peace that we offer. We have resources. And if you have questions and if you are interested, but you don't want to come up and talk to us about that, I'm okay with that. But if you still want some information, we have a website that's the leadership, the women's leadership. It's called women at calvaryvista.com. You can, you can email us and say, hey, I want some more information or I have a question. That's women at calvaryvista.com. Or if you are more comfortable and you want some interaction, come see me. Yvonne's here. There's a number of gals who are willing and ready to come alongside you because we stand in support of you. We know that the Lord will bring a beautiful work. Hear his heart for you now. The Lord brought me out. Okay, so if he's going to bring you out, he says in the scripture, he's going to bring you into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That is his heart. I just want to say that there doesn't need to be any shame, ladies. I'm wearing red for you today because I want to remind you of the blood. Okay? He covered it. He covered it. And he took the guilt and he took the shame so you can walk in freedom. That's, his, that's your God. He loves you. He loves you. So come and be transformed because he is willing and so are we. So Abigail, back to our text, she urges David to behave with the dignity of a future king. But I want us to pan back for a second to notice an interesting shift. This is point number four in your study guide. We watch Abigail's modesty and purity move forward through acts of goodness to a place of inspiration and influence inspiration and influence. She pronounces divine promise and protection over David's life. She declares God's calling upon him. She erases the possibility of a future burdened by guilt, at least from this situation. She will rouse, and I love this part, she will rouse David to godly action. Now, these are all powerful pronouncements, but I would argue, ladies, that it's not just simply her words that will eventually create success for her situation. Rather, her words were greatly enhanced and they were undergirded by her actions of respect for David. Remember, she bowed down to him, right? She acknowledged his authority by addressing him as my Lord and later my master. It's this genuine respect coupled with those encouraging words that make for a poignant foundation for success. As Titus 2.5 women who are called to be obedient to our own husbands, that the word of, of God may not be blasphemed, we want to emulate such a respect in our marriages. We don't want to underestimate the power and the value of respect in the lives of our men. Obedience to the Lord shows up in the way we respect our husbands. A woman of godly discretion, as we discussed earlier, she is circumspect, she is self-controlled, and she is able to speak and behave in a way that glorifies the Lord, which includes obeying our husbands, right? Well, how? Because the Lord is the object of her devotion and her delight. Even in difficult marriages, she can be obedient. As unto the Lord, of course, 
because her actions reflect a heart that's submitted to Christ's ways and Christ's best for her life. The Lord is her primary source of life, and she lives to please him first. Now, is this easy? No. Let's keep it real for a minute, right? Even in healthy marriages, respect can be such a struggle. Because why? We still war, keep it real, ladies, we still war with the flesh, right? We still have to contend with the curse and our desire to rule over our husbands. It's front and center every day. We have to make that choice, right? Every day the flesh is going to rise up. But if we choose, we can, we can be respectful in any, given in any given situation because we're still responsible even when sin is committed towards us. We still have the responsibility to, be, to take ownership of our response, right? So although we can be respectful in any situation, however, I really want to note here, listen to me on this, that I am not advocating blind obedience, okay? I'm not advocating blind obedience I don't want you engaging in sin just because husband's doing that, because he's caught up in a sexual sin and you feel like you have to go with him. No, you don't, girlfriend, right? Abuse, things of that nature or decree. In Ephesians 5, 22, wives are called to submit how? Unto the Lord, okay? Not as to sin or unto sin, right? As to the Lord. Marriages that are in states of crises need godly intervention and they need wise counsel. So whether we are thriving or barely surviving in our marriages, ladies, we do possess a great advantage over Abigail. Don't you want to know what that is? You have the full time and dwelling of the Holy Spirit to fill you and refresh you. As new covenant believers, we are granted 100% access to the paracletus, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit living in us. And as such, I feel impressed to say to some of you, that you are not alone. God has not abandoned you by yourself in a loveless marriage. Even if you feel you can't trust hubby, you can always and forever trust your heart to the Lord, right? David wrote in Psalm 35.3, he says, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And that word salvation there means he's your welfare, he is your prosperity. He is your deliverance, your victory. Let him speak those words over your very heart too. He is your salvation, not your husband, not the new shopping store or the coffee, whatever you want to fill in the place. He is your salvation. Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. Do not turn away from me or I will die. Let me hear of what? Your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on firm footing. Psalm 143, it's on the back. Like Abigail, our reverence for God is demonstrated by our behavior, even in our obedience to our spouses. We paint a picture to others of what we believe. We talked a little bit about that with the coffee two weeks ago. But what image do we give to our children, our friends, our family? What do they see, especially about our husbands? Would our testimony for Christ be compromised because of the manner in which we speak? Is our husband vilified or is he held in honor? Is daddy a hero or a zero in their eyes? Now, listen, ladies, I'm not telling you to fake the funk here, okay? I'm not. 
It's okay to be real. You know, we don't want to be fake. And, oh, yeah, things great. No, we're not, we're not trying to do that either. It's, it's, it's okay to be real. It's not okay to be disrespectful and disparaging. It is okay, ladies, to paint with a broad brush. All right? Or, if necessary, to keep silent altogether in the presence of others. Now, am I saying don't say anything at all? Keep your mouth shut? No, I'm saying be wise with who you speak with. When you need godly counsel, go to a trusted friend or a mentor who will genuinely take an interest in the well-being of your marriage instead of blast it on front street or behind your back. You don't want that either. So use wisdom. Use discretion. There's a vast difference between seeking help and prayer and casting criticism. Yes? Purposely esteem your husband and the respect you have for him regularly, especially in front of your kids no matter their age, because they're watching you, right? We're watching, and they're going to take your cues from you. Bless his name in front of family and friends and co-workers. Send him a personal text message and a, or a note just saying, hey, thank you for your hard work today. Thank you for your integrity. They love this. And I dare you, ladies, do it today. If you're married, do it today. Honestly, you can praise what you can praise, right? And you can pray for what you can't right? It's true. You can still thank your husband for this and all the while go tell the Lord on him over there. Yes, you can. Men are required to respond to respect or the lack thereof. Remember David's words to his men after Nabal's insult? What did he say, ladies? He said, put on your swords, right? Yes, he did. So, That communicates to me the importance of respect for a man. It doesn't get much clearer than that. They're ready to go bloodshed over the thing. That's how important respect is for a man. And it doesn't get much clearer for our onlookers either. We we want to walk wisely, not in such a way as Titus 2.5 states that maligns or blasphemes the word of God. We want to build our house wisely, and we don't want to foolishly tear it down. Like Abigail, we want to inspire We want to rouse. We want to affirm. We don't want to hinder. We don't want to degrade. Now, I'm going to have the media put a nice little quote for you on the screen. So it says, a wife's words carry immense power. Speak to encourage, not to tear down. Yes? So, ladies, we have spent all of our time thus far analyzing Abigail's behavior in light of Titus 2.5. Now it's time for us to see the fruit her actions yielded. So verse 32, it says, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. What are David's very first words? He says, praise to the Lord. When someone attributes praise to God first for your actions, then you've achieved the best results. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they do what? Yes, glorify, praise the Father in heaven. That's what we want to do. Like Abigail, your character for Christ, it's going to shine all on its own. But most of all, we want those works to be a witness resulting in the praise and glory of the Lord. That's what we're doing. We're going like this, right? Kind of like a basketball. Next. David rightly commends Abigail's good judgment, verse 33. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own words. 
Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought and said to her, to him and said, go in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So we see literally the unfolding of Proverbs 13, 15 and 16, 7 in David's response. Good understanding wins favor. And when a woman's ways are pleasing to the Lord, she makes even her enemies live at peace with her. We see a shift, David's shift from vertical praise toward God to a horizontal praise, right? Praise God, you have good judgment, right? So what I want to say here is that it's okay to receive praise. It is okay to say thank you. It is healthy. It is normal for us to need encouragement and affirmation. Praise God for people with the gift of encouragement. But we want to be careful that we're not finding our identity in the approval or the applause of others, but in Christ. Because if not, we're going to be a yo-yo. They love me. They hate me. They love me. They hate me. Right? You can go all over the place with that. We're going to be unstable. So we got to go to Jesus to find our identity and our approval because he already did that on the cross. Amen? He already says, I accept you in the beloved because I died for you. Right? So we want to be careful. It's okay, but just be careful. So David heard Abigail. He accepted her request. God used Abigail to turn back rage and win the day. She prevented more than a guilty conscience of David. She saved the lives of so many with her cool words and her apt gifts performed with the utmost respect. She was a wife of noble character whose righteous plans and upright speech rescued her whole household. So the effect of her discretion and her temperance can't be ignored. They are a powerful example, which resulted in the courageous victory of all parties involved. Now we're almost done, ladies. Hang in there with me. <clears throat> in Proverbs 12, 2, it says, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but the, but the Lord condemns a crafty man. So Abigail comes home from this interaction with David to find Nabal hosting a banquet like that of the king, and he is totally drunk. Okay, just come. He's out. Okay, so the scripture says that she told him nothing until daybreak. And again, with that action, we encounter that Abigail is waiting for the opportune time. Point number five on your study guide. She knew when to act decisively and when to wait patiently for the best potential outcome. She knew when to act and she knew when to wait. There's wisdom to note here for us too, for when we approach our husbands or really anyone with whom that we need to speak in like a serious manner, right? That this is, doesn't just apply to marriages, everyday life. So timing here is crucial. When Nabal was sober, Abigail told him everything. And it says in the scripture, his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And in his way, will in time, God's going to bring justice as he sees fit. So David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. And when his servants arrived, David's men were once again, you see a pattern, treated with honor. Verse 41, she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, here is your maidservant, 
ready to serve you and to wash the feet of my master's servants. My guess is that Abigail continued on with a practiced lifestyle of prudence and influence. But when I read that last verse, all that my mind's eye can see is Jesus. I see his heart, and I see him bent over, knees on a rough floor, gently but intentionally washing your feet. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like Abigail, Jesus willingly washed the feet of his master's servants. And he is still washing your feet today, ladies. He is still caring for each concern, tending every burden and trouble. He is fully engaged in every step you take, even if the only footprints seen are his alone, because he's carrying you in his arms. He will carry you still, even until the end of the age. May his continued heart for you be the motivation and the manner in which you serve and bless him and others. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would make the appropriate application of encouragement and correction and training and just freedom. Lord, I ask, God, that you would just bless my sisters in their group time. In Jesus' name, amen.